There are certain things that only Christians experience. One of those things is when the Holy Spirit moves powerfully through the church as the church sings unto God. And friends, that just happened because God's goodness and mercy chase after us and we experience that constantly. Praise God for that. Sermon text for today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, the man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed, were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I was looking at some comic strips recently, and I came across an interesting Dennis the Menace strip where his mom is cooking. So Dennis approaches her and asks, Are we having something I like? Or something that is good for me. It's funny how much truth we can find in the comics, right? Uh, it's not only kids that have this struggle between what they like and what is good for them. We do too in all areas of our lives. Exercising is good, but who has time for that? Eating well is good, but fast food is fast. 
Relationships are good, but they take so much work and maintenance. And the list goes on and on. But as Christians, we must constantly pursue what is good and teach our hearts to love what is good. More precisely, we need to teach our hearts to love what God calls good. If we find true goodness, we find God. Prophet Amos says, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Did you notice that for the prophet Amos, seeking good is not just a trivial option that we have in life, but it is a matter of life or death. Seek good that you might live. Today we're going to address the most important question one can possibly ask. How can I inherit eternal life? The answer is very simple. You need goodness to abound in your life. In other words, you need to be good. How good? Perfectly good. Your goodness cannot have any flaws, any spots or wrinkles. All your works must be good from the moment of conception to the moment of your death. And if you do that, you will receive eternal life. But there's a problem, isn't there? You heard it earlier from Psalm 14. No one is good. We all have failed. We all have. So at the heart of this message, there is a reminder that goodness is both necessary and inaccessible for us. So if you are not a Christian and you think, that you will be all right by just being a good person. This message will meet you head on. Friend, the Bible is clear. If you are trying to live your life as a good person, you are chasing the wind. You have already failed, and there is no way you can fix your failure. You cannot inherit eternal life by your own accomplishments. But our story for today gives us hope. Why? Because there is another way. There is hope because Jesus is good. And he invites us to share, to receive his goodness. Jesus invites us to follow him. And if we respond to this call, not only do we become followers of Christ, we become partakers of His goodness. We share His goodness with Him. This, friends, is called grace. And grace is good. So our text for today tells us that our lives will abound with goodness. 
only if, only if, we faithfully and wholeheartedly follow Jesus. So today as we look at our text, we'll consider three points. First, we'll see that only God is good. And then we'll see that God's law reveals we are not good. And finally, we'll see that God grants us the goodness we need. So let's consider first our first point, only God is good. In verse 17, we meet a rather well-known character in the Gospels. You may know this, but the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who also happen to be um, the Wayne's children, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, these are called the Synoptic Gospels. These Gospels come from a, a common perspective. They're different from John. And all of, three, of these three Gospels find it important to relate this story to us. So this person we meet is, is rather well known. He's often referred to as the rich young ruler. Mark simply calls him a man. So we'll refer to him as the man throughout our time. We know a few things about this man. He had an interest in Jesus. He had a commitment to the law of Moses. And he had great wealth. This man would have been a prime candidate for a follower of Christ. Perhaps in most churches, this man would have been seen as an example of Christianity. And he would be a good candidate for a follower of Christ if all we could see was the outside. His story contrasts with last week's story. Last week, Jesus said that children who bring no virtue to the table are the pattern for those who are to enter the kingdom of God. The greatest virtue that children bring is the virtue of having no virtues. This man, on the other hand, had many virtues. He was wealthy. Luke tells us that the, he, was a young, he was young and a ruler, likely a ruler of the synagogue, very similar to Jairus that we met back in chapter 5. This man was pious. He cared about the law according to his own account. And he had kept it from his youth, or at least he thought so. But this man lacked one thing. This man lacked an understanding and a commitment to what is truly good. He defined good himself, and he lived according to his own definition. To put it more simply, this man lacked a commitment to God. Why? Because God alone is good, and one of the greatest evidence that we are committed to God is that we are committed to what God calls good. Notice how the interaction between Jesus and this man begins in verse 17. As Jesus is journeying with his disciples south towards Jerusalem, this man runs and kneels before Jesus. So far, so good. 
He's done everything right up to this point. He runs to Jesus. Dignified Middle Eastern men do not run. They walk. He honors Jesus with his kneeling posture. Then he asks Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And guess what? This is the right question. He asks the right question. So thus far, you and I can't see anything wrong with this man. I wonder how would you have answered this question? If someone approached you and asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How would you answer this question? I know what I would have done. I would have shared the gospel with him. Jesus lived, died, was buried, rose again from the dead, paying the penalty of our sins, granting us his righteousness. And if you believe in him, you will be forgiven. Although it would be right to do this, this is not what Jesus does. A modern-day evangelist would have probably have said, you need to pray this prayer so you can be saved, or you need to walk down this aisle so that you can be saved. And if that man had done that, he would have been justified in his sins. The problem is that over the years we have justified so many sinners with this pragmatic methods of evangelism that are foreign to the New Testament. How many have prayed a sinner's prayer without repentance and walked down an aisle with impenitent hearts just to be declared righteous? Proverbs 24, 24 through 25 says, Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight. And a good blessing will come upon them. So Jesus does not justify the man, does he? Instead, in his answer, he rebukes him. There's so many things that Jesus could have highlighted in this man's question. But he highlights something that this man perhaps said without much thought. He says, why do you call me good? On the surface, it seems like a strange response and somewhat disconnected, but it's not. Jesus had insights we don't have. He saw the marrow of the problem here. He actually bypasses secondary issues and addresses the heart of the matter. Jesus knew the man had a superficial and erroneous definition of the word good. Good is a moral category that is defined by perfection. This is why Jesus says to him, only God is good. In other words, don't use the word 
good lightly. Jesus is by no means implying that he is not God with this, with this statement. Instead, Jesus is saying, do you understand what you are saying? Are you approaching me because you understand that I am good because I am God? Or are you just impressed with my teaching? Are you just impressed with the exterior, with the superficial? Good means perfectly wise. Good means sinless. Good is a category that is reserved for God and God alone. Do you understand the deep meaning of this word? Clearly the man did not understand that. So what does Jesus do? Jesus shows him the law of God. So God's law reveals we are not good. Let's consider this point now. The gospel justifies, but the law condemns. Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You see, the law demands perfect compliance and allegiance to the law. And if we break but one of the commandments, we break them all. Jesus knew this man needed not to be justified in his sin, but he needed to be made aware of the pending condemnation for his heart that was hardened towards God. But Jesus doesn't just take him to the law. Jesus takes him to what is called the second table of the law. The law is traditionally divided into two parts. The first table of the law are commandments 1 through 4. And they lay out how we are to relate to God. So we are to worship God. We are not to bow before images. We are to, we are to not take the Lord's name in vain. We are to reserve Sabbath for the worship of God. The second table of the law, however, are commandments 5 through 10. And they lay out how we are to relate to others. Jesus knew that. Considering this man's misunderstanding of goodness. Jesus knew that he would find himself justified before God. He had a low view of God's goodness and a high view of his own goodness. He didn't understand what it meant to approach God in his holiness. So Jesus bypasses commandments 1 through 4 and takes him to the commandments that address his relationship with others. What we believe about God is often most clearly revealed not in what we say about God, but in how what we say about God reflects the way we relate to other people. You understand that? 
So it's not enough for us to say we love God. That love that we have for God must reflect into love for others. So Jesus goes to that part of the love. We say we love God, but we do not love our wives, our children, our fellow church members, our co-workers, our neighbors. What does that say about our love for God? Can people see commandments 1 through 4 in our hearts as we live out command, commandments 5 through 10? Look at verse 19. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And how does the man respond? He says, I've kept them all. I've kept them all from my youth. What a statement. So bold. And yet so mistaken. So blind. The man's misunderstanding of the word good wasn't limited to how he viewed God and Jesus. His misunderstanding of the word good was also in relationship to how he viewed himself. He thought... God is good, I'm good, we're good. And Jesus understood that the man had a low view of God's goodness, which led to a high view of his own goodness. You see, we always compensate our misunderstandings of God with ourselves. If we don't think of God as perfectly holy, we won't care about holiness in our lives. If we, don't, if we don't view God as perfectly just, justice won't play a major role in our hearts. If we haven't experienced the love and mercy of God, we won't give love and mercy. The way we view God reflects the way we live our lives. The man thought of God more lowly than he should. And of himself more highly than he ought. This is a recipe for disaster. This approach minimizes the holiness of God and maximizes our own moral abilities. And when we minimize the holiness of God and maximize human ability, the gospel is lost. Our need for God is lost. This approach makes man the center and God a nice addition to our experience you see this is what this man wanted he thought well i have a good status in society i have money i have morality can i take jesus and add jesus to all of these things that i already have oh friends this is not how jesus works either jesus replaces all or you can't have him at all. At the heart of Christianity, there is this truth that we must constantly be reminding ourselves that God is good and we are not. I wonder if you believe this. Do you truly believe that there is no goodness that is native to your heart? Do you view yourself as the moral standard in any way? Do you think that other people should be 
like you. We can feel tempted to think that we understand Christianity perfectly and anyone who does not live like us falls short. We can think that we are the moral, spiritual guardians of others around us and our goal is to shape them after our image. But friends, when that is true of us, it simply indicates that we have not understood the grace and the mercy of God. Friends, maturity in Christianity looks like faith and repentance rather than pride and self-reliance. Less of me and more of Christ. We ought to rightly assess ourselves and when we do, what we see is pure depravity apart from Christ. This man failed to see that. But notice verse 21. Verse 21 is one of the most tender verses in all of the Bible. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. The love of Jesus is not demonstrated in a salvific way here. This man was not saved. He walked away not saved. Jesus loved him by telling him the truth. Jesus loved him by revealing his hardened heart. Friend, he who loves you most tells you the most truth. So he tells him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. It's interesting that Jesus says, you lack one thing, and then he tells him three things. You see that? You have give, uh, give, right? Come and follow. But it's all the same. It's all abandoning his self-reliance and turning to Christ's reliance. It's important for us to think that this is not a direct indictment on wealthy people. Jairus, back in chapter 5, was likely wealthy. He was a leader in the community. His daughter's funeral had musicians and professional mourners. We know that Jesus had a friend called Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea who was generous. When wealthy people humbly follow Christ, that's a blessing. This indictment was not on the man's wealth, but on his love of wealth. Notice back in Verse 19, when Jesus listed all the commandments of the second table of the law, there's one commandment that's missing. Do not covet. Why does Jesus do that? Why does Jesus omit the tenth commandment? Because this man loved wealth. He loved it more than he loved Jesus. Coveting is not just desiring things, but desiring them over God. More precisely, coveting is desiring things as though they were God. And for this man, money was God. Jesus knew the man hadn't kept the law perfectly from his youth. No one has. You heard from Psalm 14 earlier. No one is good. No one keeps the law. We're all lawbreakers. We're all a 
accused as guilty by the commandments of God. This man had not understood the nature of the law of God that accounts not just for actions, but for intentions. The law had to be kept at a heart level. Jesus explains this in the Sermon of the Mount when he says, it's not just murder, but the desire to murder. It's not just lust, but the desire to lust. It is not just wealth, but the desire to pursue wealth as your ultimate goal. So Jesus, by omitting the Tenth Commandment, reveals this man's intentions and desires more clearly. Coveting was, in this, man's, was this man's sin of choice. This man was trying to serve two masters, God and money, but Jesus gave him an ultimatum. Choose one. The heart of the Tenth Commandment there is the first commandment. At the heart of coveting, there is idolatry. The heart of coveting, coveting, there is a false god. Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, that which is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And suddenly, we are all guilty of idolatry, aren't we? Idolatry of the heart. We all have desires that are de facto idols in our hearts. Covetousness can be explained as dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction in what God has provided for us. It is easy to be dissatisfied wishing to have other people's lives, other people's experiences, experiences and thinking that we will be good if we receive those I wish I didn't have to go home to the same tired food, the same tired arguments. I wish I didn't have to clean up after my children five times a day, work so hard, make so little. If I could just have someone else's life, someone else's spouse, children, job, boss, bank accounts. And in doing so, we forget that all that we have has come from the Lord. So the rejection of the very thing we experience in life end up being a rejection of God himself. We all struggle with this. But Christians struggle with this in a different way. We're going to see in a second there's a stark difference between this man and the disciples. The disciples have so often complained about dissatisfaction lack of food, lack of rest, the crowds. But they have followed Christ. And this is what Christians do. We struggle, but we follow. There's a difference between those who battle idolatry in the heart and those who bow to the idols of the hearts. Do you know what I would have done? If Jesus had told me, sell all your possessions and follow me, well, that would be easy for me. I don't have a lot of possessions. I would have sold them. And I would have followed him. And if you are a believer, you know what you would have done? You would have done the same. It might have been hard, right? It might have been a challenge. But you would have done it. Why? Because you love Jesus. Because you know that there is nothing more valuable in this world than Christ. 
And even though we try to hold on to the things of this world, ultimately we know that we'll let go of everything in order to follow Christ. But why? Because we're better? Because we're better than the man in the story? Do we have greater morality than him? See, we can't think that way because if we think that way, we're just like him. Do you know why you and I would sell all our possessions and follow Christ? Because we have been born again. Because we have been given eyes to see the wondrous things about Christ. Because we have been transformed and transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. Therefore, we love Christ more than we love everything else. We know Christ. So we would leave, leave all things behind, wouldn't we? Family, friends, career, comforts, country, self, success. All of this for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. A bit over a year ago, a group of folks from our church, I've told you this story before, um, was talking to some unbelieving students at FIT. And in the course of the conversation, one of the students asked, what does it mean to be a Christian? And our summer intern back then, Eduardo, said, it means you have to give up everything and follow Christ. What a great answer. What a great answer for a college student to hear who thinks he's building his kingdom and hears, no, you have to abandon your kingdom to enter the kingdom of Christ. You must leave everything and follow Christ. But that man loved his possessions more than he loved Christ. So you read in verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. I wonder what that man's experience was at the end of that day. As he sat down at dinner table, perhaps he was married, perhaps he had children, he looks at his family, and he thinks, I have everything, but I've just walked away from Christ. What a sad realization to think that you have gained the whole world, but that you have lost Jesus Christ. Oh friend, may you not think that. May you look at your life and say, I lack so many things, but one thing I do not lack, and that is Jesus Christ, my Savior. Friend, may you, may your life be hard in this end of eternity and blissful for the rest of eternity. May you look back in eternity and think, the first 80, 70, 80, 90 years, they were hard. But eternity has been great. Because you did not walk away from Christ. Instead, you abandoned your kingdom to enter His. Friends, that is possible. Because God grants us the goodness that we need. So let us consider this point now. Now that the rich man left, Jesus directs his attention to his disciples. Jesus never missed a teaching opportunity. And this was an invaluable opportunity for the disciples of Christ. What happened to this rich ruler was about to happen to them. They would be challenged. Are you going to follow the crucified Christ? 
or are you going to abandon him? They just saw a prime candidate for discipleship walk away from Christ. They were probably thinking, this guy is better qualified than us all. But Jesus tells them that it is difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were looking at the outside. They were amazed, perhaps bewildered is a better word. They were in shock. This guy who has power, possessions, prestige, and piety doesn't qualify to enter the kingdom. And if he doesn't, then who does? The disciples were looking at the credentials. And this man could not, and if this man could not be saved, then who could? And Jesus says that the salvation of a rich person is unlikely, as unlikely as a camel going through the eye of a needle. I don't think Jesus is referring to large animals going through holes in walls, as some have suggested. No, I think Jesus is using hyperbole to express the impossibility of salvation. I think this is kind of like the illustration that Jesus uses in Matthew 7 about um, specks and logs in eyes. Jesus is using a concept that is impossible to refer to something that is impossible. I understand that Jesus is highlighting the experience of the rich man, but I don't think the impossibility of salvation is exclusively is exclusive to the rich man. No, we all follow, follow different idols that lead us astray from God. It is impossible for anyone to be saved. Jesus is saying salvation is impossible for men, but not for God. Why? Because God makes salvation. Men don't. Only God is good and men are not good. But in salvation, God makes, God makes good available to men. How? By uniting himself with men. Men are only good in as much as they are made one with God. And how does this happen? Through faith in the gospel. You see, when Jesus says, follow me, he's not just saying, follow me. He's saying, become one with me. That's the invitation that we receive. We have this invitation to become one with Christ so that his righteousness becomes ours, so that his goodness becomes ours. You see, Psalm 14 says, there's no one who is good, but we know that there's one exception, right? That is Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who was tempted just like us, but never sinned. And when Jesus says, leave everything, everything behind and follow me, he's saying, join me. Become one with me and my goodness will be yours. You see, this is what I said in the beginning, right? Our goodness must be perfect in order for us to receive eternal life. And this is the only way if Jesus grants us his righteousness. So Jesus lives the life that we could not live, fulfilling every aspect of the law of God. So Jesus is the only recipient of the blessings that were promised to Israel 
for covenant keeping. Not only that, the opposite is true as well. Jesus died accursed, receiving upon himself the curses of those who would break the law of God. And he tells us, my righteousness is yours for my obedience and your sins are mine. Your sins are mine through my death. So friends, when Jesus invites us to join him, become followers of him, he is telling us, I'm going to take away everything that is wrong with you and I'm going to pay for that and I'm going to give you everything that is right about me and you can have it freely. This is the gospel. This is our only hope for eternal life. And we can only understand that if we understand that Jesus alone is good and we are not. How do you receive the benefits of the gospel? By faith. Believe it. Receive it through Christ. Do you remember a passage last week? Jesus said that salvation didn't come to the great, the mighty, the virtuous. He was actually saying that in order for a person to enter the kingdom of God, he had to receive it like a child. A child offers nothing. This man, on the other hand, had all things to offer. But for Jesus, all his possessions amounted to nothing. Why? Because Jesus needs nothing from us. Wealth does not impress him. He owns all things, but he delights in childlike dependent faith. It's interesting that Jesus calls his disciple in verse 24, children. Children. This is not a common designation from Jesus to his disciples. But it does remind us that unlike the men, the disciples were like Jesus, were like children. To Jesus, they dispossess themselves of all things and follow Christ. We've seen the disciples do several foolish things in these chapters and throughout the Gospel of Mark, but yet, unlike the rich men, they are receiving the kingdom, they are following Christ. And this is encouraging, right? Because haven't we done so many foolish things in our lives? And yet, if the disciples qualify, so do we. Why? Because we bring no virtue. And we find our virtue in Christ. This is good news. Because this reminds us that following Jesus does not require possessions or perfect faith even. It just demands obedience to the call. Peter says, see, we have left everything and followed you. They have. Haven't they? Just listen to Jesus' calling of Peter and some of the other disciples back in chapter 1 at the Sea of Galilee. Mark says in chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately... They left their nets and followed him. What a beautiful picture. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, 
And they left their father Zebedee in the boats with the hired servants, servants and followed him. Do you see how different this is? Do you see how different the disciples were from this man? So Jesus answers, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or, father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. And how could this be true? How do we receive all the great benefits now in this time? It is through the church. The church is where the poor can lean on the wealthy. The church is where the barren can be fruitful with children. The church is where the lonely can find companionship. The church is where we can share all things and experience the blessing that is yet to come in this current age. We may abandon all things, but we are not abandoned or alone when it comes to Christ. We're added to a community who can provide abundantly to our needs and desires. But Jesus adds with persecutions, doesn't he? For persecutions wouldn't last forever because Jesus also promises eternal life. And eternal life will be granted not for those who are great in this life, but for those who humbly trust and follow Christ. Because the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. this moment, I would like to invite the deacons to come forward as we prepare ourselves to observe the Lord's table. <clears throat>